Section 2 of A Master of Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Master of Mysteries by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 1, Part 2. That afternoon I borrowed some lines from Bindloss, and taking an old boat which was moored to the bank of the mill pond, set off under the pretense of fishing for pike. The weather was perfect for the time of year. Waiting for my opportunity, I brought the boat up to land on the bank that dammed up the stream, and getting out walked along it in the direction of the mill-wheel, over which the water was now rushing. As I observed it from this side of the bank, I saw that the tower in which my room was placed must at one time have been part of the mill itself, and I further noticed that the masonry was comparatively new, showing that alterations must have taken place when the house was abandoned as a mill and was turned into an inn. I clambered down the side of the wheel, holding onto the beams, which were green and slippery, and peered through the paddles. As I was making my examination, a voice suddenly startled me. "'What are you doing down there?' I looked up. Old Bindloss was standing on the bank, looking down at me. He was alone, and his face was contorted with a queer mixture of fear and passion." I hastily hoisted myself up and stood beside him. "'What are you poking around down there for?' he said, pushing his ugly old face into mine as he spoke. "'You fool! If you had fallen, you would have been drowned. No one could swim a stroke in that mill-race. And then there would have been another death, and all the old fuss over again. Look here, sir. Will you have the goodness to get out of the place? I don't want you here any more.' "'I intend to leave to-morrow morning,' I answered in a pacifying voice and I am really very much obliged to you for warning me about the mill. You had best not go near it again, he said in a menacing voice, and then he turned hastily away. I watched him as he climbed up a steep bank and disappeared from view. He was going in the opposite direction from the house. Seizing the opportunity of his absence, I once more approached the mill. Was it possible that Wentworth had been hurled into it? But had this been the case, there would have been signs and marks on the body. Having reached the wheel, I clambered boldly down. It was now getting dusk, but I could see that a prolongation of the axle entered the wall of the tower. The fittings were also in wonderfully good order, and the bolt that held the great wheel only required to be drawn out to set it in motion. That evening during supper I thought very hard. I perceived that Bindloss was angry, also that he was suspicious and alarmed. I saw plainly that the only way to really discover what had been done to Wentworth was to cause the old ruffian to try similar means to get rid of me. This was a dangerous expedient, but I felt desperate, and my curiosity as well as interests were keenly aroused. Having finished my supper, I went into the passage preparatory to going into the kitchen. I had on felt slippers, and my footfall made no noise. As I approached the door, I heard Bindloss saying to his wife, "'He's been poking about the mill will. I wish he would make himself scarce.' "'Oh, he can't find out anything,' was the reply. "'You keep quiet, Bindloss. He'll be off in the morning.' "'That's as may be,' was the answer. And then there came a harsh and a very disagreeable laugh. I waited for a moment, and then entered the kitchen. Bindloss was alone now. He was bending over the fire, smoking. "'I shall leave early in the morning,' I said. "'So please have my bill ready for me.' I then seated myself near him, drawing up my chair close to the blaze. He looked as if he resented this, but said nothing. "'I am very curious about the deaths which occur in this house,' I said after a pause. "'How many did you say there were?' "'That is nothing to you. 
he answered. "'We never wanted you here, and you can go when you please.' "'I shall go to-morrow morning, but I wish to say something now. "'And what may that be?' "'I don't believe in that story about the place being haunted. "'Oh, you don't, don't you?' "'He dropped his pipe, and his glittering eyes gazed at me "'with a mixture of anger and ill-concealed alarm. "'No!' I paused, then I said slowly and emphatically, "'I went back to the mill even after your warning, and—' "'What?' he cried, starting to his feet. "'Nothing,' I answered, "'only I don't believe in the ghost.' His face turned not only white, but livid. I left him without another word. I saw that his suspicions had been much strengthened by my words. This I intended. To induce the ruffian to do his worst was the only way to wring his secret from him. My hideous room looked exactly as it had done on the previous evening. The grotesque pattern on the walls seemed to start out in bold relief. Some of the ugly lines seemed at that moment, to my imagination, almost to take human shape, to convert themselves into ogre-like faces and to grin at me. Was I too daring? Was it wrong of me to risk my life in this manner? I was terribly tired, and curious as it may seem, my greatest fear at that crucial moment was the dread that I might fall asleep. I had spent two nights with scarcely any repose, and felt that at any moment, notwithstanding all my efforts, slumber might visit me. In order to give Bindloss full opportunity for carrying out his scheme, it was necessary for me to get into the bed, and even to feign sleep. In my present exhausted condition, the pretense of slumber would easily lapse into the reality. This risk, however, which really was a very grave one, must be run. Without undressing, I got into bed, pulling the bedclothes well over me. In my hand I held my revolver. I deliberately put out the candles, and then lay motionless, waiting for events. The house was quiet as the grave, there was not a stir, and gradually my nerves, excited as they were, began to calm down. As I had fully expected, overpowering sleepiness seized me, and notwithstanding every effort I found myself drifting away into the land of dreams. I began to wish that whatever apparition was to appear would do so at once and get it over. Gradually but surely I seemed to pass from all memory of my present world, and to live in a strange and terrible phantasmagoria. In that state I slept, in that state I also dreamt, and dreamt horribly. I thought that I was dancing a waltz with an enormously tall woman. She towered above me, clasping me in her arms, and began to whirl me round and round at a giddy speed. I could hear the crashing music of a distant band. Faster and faster, round and round some great empty hall I was whirled. I knew that I was losing my senses, and screamed to her to stop and let me go. Suddenly there was a terrible crash close to me. Good God! I found myself awake, but I was still moving. Where was I? Where was I going? I leapt up on the bed, only to reel and fall heavily backwards upon the floor. What was the matter? Why was I sliding, sliding? Had I suddenly gone mad, or was I still suffering from some hideous nightmare? I tried to move, to stagger to my feet, then by slow degrees my senses began to return, and I knew where I was. I was in the circular room, the room where Wentworth had died, but what was happening to me I could not divine. I only knew that I was being whirled round and round at a velocity that was every moment increasing. By the moonlight that struggled in through the window I saw that the floor and the bed upon it was revolving, but the table was lying on its side, and its fall must have awakened me. I could not see any other furniture in the room. By what mysterious manner had it been removed? 
Making a great effort, I crawled to the center of this awful chamber, and seizing the foot of the bed, struggled to my feet. Here I knew there would be less motion, and I could just manage to see the outline of the door. I had taken the precaution to slip the revolver into my pocket, and I still felt that if human agency appeared, I had a chance of selling my life dearly. But surely the horror I was passing through was invented by no living man. As the floor of the room revolved in the direction of the door, I made a dash for it, but was carried swiftly past and again fell heavily. When I came round again, I made a frantic effort to cling to one of the steps, but in vain. The head of the bedstead caught me as it flew round and tore my arms away. In another moment I believe I should have gone raving mad with terror. My head felt as if it would burst. I found it impossible to think consecutively. The only idea which really possessed me was a mad wish to escape from this hideous place. I struggled to the bedstead, and dragging the legs from their sockets, pulled it into the middle of the room away from the wall. With this out of the way, I managed at last to reach the door in safety. The moment my hand grasped the handle, I leapt upon the little step and tried to wrench the door open. It was locked, locked from without. It defied my every effort. I had only just standing room for my feet. Below me, the floor of the room was still racing round with terrible speed. I dared scarcely look at it, for the giddiness in my head increased each moment. The next instant a soft footstep was distinctly audible, and I saw a gleam of light through a chink of the door. I heard a hand fumbling at the lock. The door was slowly opened outwards, and I saw the face of Bindloss. For a moment he did not perceive me, for I was crouching down on the step, and the next instant with all my force I flung myself upon him. He uttered a yell of terror. The lantern he carried dropped and went out, but I had gripped him round the neck with my fingers, driving them deep down into his lean, sinewy throat. With frantic speed I pulled him along the passage up to a window through which the moonlight was shining. Here I released my hold of his throat, but immediately covered him with my revolver. "'Down on your knees, or you are a dead man,' I cried. "'Confess everything, or I shoot you through the heart.' His courage had evidently forsaken him. He began to whimper and cry bitterly. "'Spare my life! Spare my life!' he cried. "'I will tell you everything. Only spare my life!' "'Be quick about it,' I said. "'I am in no humor to be merciful. Out with the truth!' I was listening anxiously for the wife's step, but except for the low hum of machinery and the splashing of the water, I heard nothing. "'Speak!' I said, giving the old man a shake. His lips trembled. His words came out falteringly. "'It was Wentworth's doing!' he panted. "'Wentworth? Not the murdered man!' I cried. "'No, no, his cousin! The ruffian who has been the curse of my life! Owing to that last death he inherits the property. He is the real owner of the mill, and he invented the revolving floor. There were deaths. Oh, yes, oh, yes. It was so easy, and I wanted the money.' The police never suspected, nor did the doctors. Wentworth was bitter hard on me, and I got into his power. Here he choked and sobbed. I'm a miserable old man, sir, he gasped. So you killed your victims for the sake of money, I said, grasping him by the shoulder. Yes, he said, yes. The bailiff had twenty pounds, all in gold. No one ever knew. I took it and was able to satisfy Wentworth for a bit. And what about Archibald Wentworth? That was his doing, and I was to be paid. And now, finally, you wanted to get rid of me? Yes, for you suspected. As I spoke, I perceived by the ghastly light of the moon another door near. I opened it, and saw that it was the entrance to a small, dark lumber-room. 
I pushed the old man in, turned the key in the lock, and ran downstairs. The wife was still unaccountably absent. I opened the front door, and trembling, exhausted, drenched in perspiration, found myself in the open air. Every nerve was shaken. At that terrible moment I was not in the least master of myself. My one desire was to fly from the hideous place. I had just reached the little gate when a hand, light as a feather, touched my arm. I looked up. The girl Liz stood before me. "'You are saved,' she said. "'Thank God! I tried all I could to stop the wheel. See, I am drenched to the skin. I could not manage it. But at least I locked Granny up. She's in the kitchen, sound asleep. She drank a lot of gin.' "'Where were you all day yesterday?' I asked. "'Locked up in a room in the further tower. But I managed to squeeze through the window, though it half killed me. I knew if you stayed they would try it on to-night. Thank God you are saved!' "'Well, don't keep me now,' I said. "'I have been saved as by a miracle. You are a good girl, and I am much obliged to you. You must tell me another time how you managed to live through all these horrors.' "'Ain't I all but mad?' was her pathetic reply. "'Oh, my God, what I suffer!' She pressed her hand to her face. The look in her eyes was terrible. But I could not wait now to talk to her further. I hastily left the place. How I reached Harkhurst I can never tell, but early in the morning I found myself there. I went straight to Dr. Stanmore's house, and having got him up, I communicated my story. He and I together immediately visited the superintendent of police. Having told my exciting tale— we took a trap, and all three returned to the Castle Inn. We were back there before eight o'clock on the following morning, but as the police officer expected, the place was empty. Bindloss had been rescued from the dark closet, and he and his wife and the girl Liz had all flown. The doctor, the police officer, and I all went up to the circular room. We then descended to the basement, and after a careful examination we discovered a low door through which we crept. We then found ourselves in a dark vault which was full of machinery. By the light of a lantern we examined it. Here we saw an explanation of the whole trick. The shaft of the mill-wheel, which was let through the wall of the tower, was continuous as the axle of a vertical cogged wheel, and by a multiplication action turned a large horizontal wheel into which a vertical shaft descended. This shaft was let into the center of four cross-beams supporting the floor of the room in which I had slept. All round the circular edge of the floor was a steel rim which turned in a circular socket. It needn't but a touch to set this hideous apparatus in motion. The police immediately started in pursuit of Bindloss, and I returned to London. That evening Edgecombe and I visited Dr. Miles Gordon. Hard-headed old physician that he was, he was literally aghast when I told him my story. He explained to me that a man placed in the position in which I was when the floor began to move would by means of centrifugal force suffer from enormous congestion of the brain. In fact, the revolving floor would induce an artificial condition of apoplexy. If the victim were drugged or even only sleeping heavily, and the floor began to move slowly, insensibility would almost immediately be induced, which would soon pass into coma and death, and a post-mortem examination some hours afterward would show no cause for death, as the brain would appear perfectly healthy, the blood having again left it. From the presence of Dr. Miles Gordon, Edgecombe and I went to Scotland Yard, and the whole affair was put into the hands of the London detective force. With the clue which I had almost sacrificed my life to furnish, they quickly did the rest. Wentworth was arrested, and under pressure was induced to make a full confession. 
but old Bindloss had already told me the gist of the story. Wentworth's father had owned the mill, had got into trouble with the law, and changed his name. In fact, he had spent five years in penal servitude. He then went to Australia and made money. He died when his son was a young man. This youth inherited all the father's vices. He came home, visited the mill, and being of a mechanical turn of mind, invented the revolving floor. He changed the mill into an inn, put Bindloss, one of his pals, into possession with the full intention of murdering unwary travellers from time to time for their money. The police, however, wanted him for a forged bill, and he thought it best to fly. Bindloss was left in full possession. Worried by Wentworth, who had him in his power for a grave crime committed years ago, he himself on two occasions murdered a victim in the circular room. Meanwhile, several unexpected deaths had taken place in the older branch of the Wentworth family, and Archibald Wentworth alone stood between his cousin and the great estates. Wentworth came home, and with the aid of Bindloss, got Archibald into his power. The young artist slept in the fatal room, and his death was the result. At this moment Wentworth and Bindloss are committed for trial at the Old Bailey, and there is no doubt what the result will be. The ghost mystery in connection with the Castle Inn has, of course, been explained away forever. End of chapter 1